Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour, everyone. And this is exciting for me. This is our first ever official guest co-host on the Hidden History Happy Hour. <laughs> for those of you who guessed it, you're going to get drinks in London. It's fan favorite, Mike Cole. Welcome back, Mike Cole. Thank you. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Whilst my friend and co-host Alex Dean is on a much-deserved overseas assignment of joy, the show must go on. And for those of you who follow Alex on social media, I'm sure you already know that congratulations in order. Mazel tov, Alex and Katrina. Katrina, Dean, I wish you a lifetime of therapy because you're going to need it, my friend. No, congratulations. They're off on a well-deserved honeymoon, enjoying uh, the time. Alex always manages, by the way, to absent himself from the UK when there's a leadership fight. So he has, <laughs> he has done it once again. <laughs> and Mike, so much we could talk about. But first, I got to ask you an immediate question that is from the last 45 minutes. Where's the fire, my friend? Oh, it's in the town of uh, South Bloom and Grove right next to here. Yeah, for, for those of you listening, I literally walked in the door 10 minutes ago. You can't see me, but I'm covered in dirt. Uh, we were fighting a wildfire out there. Uh, most of our departments out here there were uh, in these rural areas were volunteers. So we get a pager. And if you're not doing your regular job, you jump in the car and you run to the firehouse and you, you get to work. Wait, wait, wait. An actual pager? Yeah, an old school pager sitting out. I mean, I leave it in my bedroom, but yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. The kind that clips wow. the jeans, it's awful, yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Wild. It's yeah. like a time machine. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Wow. Well, it is my great good fortune to have you on, Mike. And as our fans know well, Mike Cole is an American author of fantasy, science fiction, and nonfiction, and now history. Uh, his book series include the Shadow Ops, Reawakening, and Sacred Throne series. And his career also involves television, having appeared on the CBS reality show Hunted, which may come up a little bit later, <laughs> uh, and on the Discovery Channel series Contact. And Mike, I noticed in uh, researching your oeuvre over the last couple of days that you have a distinctive, incredibly tight, but different colored T-shirt for each show. That's exactly right. The only, <laughs> the only really important thing to me is that it is a child's medium. The color is not, is not really what I care about. The pattern is fine. It just must be so tight that I need a shoehorn to get into it. Yeah, and but your fans can immediately tell, is it hunted or is it contact? Because the right. t-shirt. That's right, just check the colors. Also, I learned this, I didn't even know this last time you were on, that your Shadow Ops Control Point novel won the 2013 Compton Cook Award. It did, it did, yeah. Yeah, thanks, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a surprise in my debut. I moved in more into history since 2020, but uh, fiction was very near and dear to my heart for a while. Well, I was about to say that Mike is also a, a real-world cyber detective and intelligence analyst and author of exceptional books of ancient warfare history, including my personal favorite, The Bronze Lie, which we discussed in Hidden History Happy Hour episode 13. So we'll put that in the show notes, check it out. And also, Mike was our guest live in New York City on episode 20. So check that out too. That was a good time. Yeah, it was great to have you there. That still is one of our most popular episodes that we've ever done, Mike. So thanks. Mm. And thanks again for co-hosting. Now, being that we are the Hidden History Happy Hour, I have to talk a little bit about my uh, my liquor selection today. And uh, going back to our roots, 
Uh, I am once again drinking bourbon. However, Mike Cole, this is a surprise to you. In a salute to all of Mike's and my friends in the special operations community, I am drinking a local Seattle distillery called Heritage Special Operations First Special Forces Group Whiskey Number no. 7. And this was created in conjunction with the First Special Forces Detachment at uh, Fort uh, Lewis McCord uh, in, in beautiful Tacoma, Washington, handcrafted by Heritage's uh, uh, master distillers. It's a mighty tasty blend of bourbon, rye, and single malt whiskey aged in new American oak. I didn't know that until I looked it up. And most importantly, a portion of all the proceeds from this whiskey goes to special forces charities and sales have helped raise $140,000 for worthy causes such as scholarship funds for children of special forces members. And Mike, given your history in the intelligence community, I'm sure you remember Johnny Mike Spann, uh, the first American casualty in Afghanistan after 9-11. Sure, that's wonderful. No, it's great. I'm glad that you're supporting that charity, man. Thank you. I was a part of setting up the original scholarship fund for uh, Johnny Mike Spann's family uh, many, many years ago and uh, mm. proud to support this. And it's damn good whiskey too. So everybody out there, buy it, order mm. it. It's going to be good and you're supporting an amazing cause. Yes. And even though we are a, a somewhat liquor-based show, we are a large tent I'm sure sometime soon we'll have cannabis uh, folks on. <laughs> Mike is not drinking alcohol today, but you're equally welcome. And it might be good because you might keep me on track on the story. Yeah, man. And I think like I just can't come off a job like that and start drinking. I'm sure like no. a, lot of, a lot of the guys are home doing it. I'll just make myself sick. I need to come down first. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. And uh, thank you for, for doing that. It's uh, I'm sure you've saved many lives since you've been. So this is uh, like your, I don't know, I can't keep count, but like your fourth full-time job as volunteer firefighter. Right? <laughs> I think it's like a, it's sort of a, a standard uh, cursus honorum uh, to use a Latin term is that, you know, you do your military intelligence career. And then when you get out and you go into the private sector, you want something. Cause like, what do we do? We do cyber jobs, right? We're doing an investigation. We're looking at computers. We're doing forensics on logs. And, you know, you miss your action days. You miss ground pounding. And, and where can you do that if you're not going to, you know, be a cop or you're not going to still be active in the military and it's in the fire service. So when you check the pedigrees of a lot of the firefighters in these communities out here, they're, we all are vets and we're all former cops and we all just want to keep that action going. We're sort of adrenaline junkies who, who can't put it down. Yeah, but also maybe can't uh, jump out of airplanes as easily as uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> we're getting old and creepy for sure. I still got I a mean, few to, yet. To be fair, I am equally skilled as I was 20 years ago, because then I had zero skills and now I still have zero skills. So there's, I'm something, there's something to be said for consistency, Brian. That's very well done. <laughs> so we are going to get to one of Alex's stories in just a moment. But first, I owe our listeners and viewers a book report, because in our last episode, I mentioned that I was going to be reading as part of my October tradition. Every year, I would try to read some classic horror fiction or hopefully new classic horror fiction. So I was going to read House he, uh, sorry, Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremble. You know this book, Mike. It's a fantastic book. Paul, Paul and I crossed paths multiple times when I was Get uh, out. in my fiction days. Yeah, sure. I know. I've met Paul many times. That is one of my favorite books by him. It is amazing. It is easily- I swear, I swear to our viewers and listeners, we didn't set this up. I don't think Mike has watched our last episode. Mike, I bought this in an airport on my way back from Italy in September, and I, well, I determined to read it in October. Buckle up. It is one of the best horror books ever written. It's in the same, I consider it to be on the same plane 
as Shirley Jackson. And I, if I'm uh. remembering correctly, I reviewed it. If people go to my Goodreads account, I think I wrote a, an absolutely stellar review of that book. You are in for oh. oh, well, this is an amazing coincidence, which no one will believe, but I'm sure somewhere there are cyber records that would convince people that we didn't coordinate this ahead of time. So Mike, I am 80% um, of the way through. I have determined I will finish this on Halloween night. And uh, based on Stephen King's review, as well as yours, I suspect I will not sleep for a number of days after that. It's absolutely fantastic. The thing I love about it, if I recall correctly, is I just love unreliable narrators. And really that was the strength of Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. And by the way, for yes. those of you who are fans of the TV show, only the name matches the, the book, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, with the unreliable narrator's got nothing to do with it. And, and Trembley, I think, admittedly channeled that very thing, that keeping sure. the reader uneasy because you can't tell if the narrator is telling the truth or not. And it's, it's so hard to pull that off because if For the narrator sure. is completely unreliable, the reader just unhooks from the book. But, right. but Trembley nails it. He walks the line perfectly. That book is amazing. For sure. And there's a great uh, reality TV angle to the book as well, Mike, yeah. which uh, you yeah. and I have been involved with. Yeah. The um, Interesting, though, we might have a slight disagreement here because I love uh, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. However, I also love the Mike Flanagan TV series, The Haunting of Hill House, even though they're completely different. Yeah, well, no, don't get me wrong. The Haunting of Hill House is, I think, one of the best TV shows, hard TV shows ever made. The only point I was making is that it only shares the name with the book. And you're right. The stories are completely different, but no, 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 don't, don't take, take that wrong. I think it's one of the, it's a fantastic television show. And you're right. And unfortunately this will air after Halloween, uh, uh, 2022, but next year, Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, slightly less good. I still liked it. It's very atmospheric, not as good, but yeah. the midnight hour that Mike Flanagan dropped this October. Amazing. I got to see that. I got to oh. see that suggestion. If if there's no fires between now and the end of Halloween, you should binge that because it is uh, it is quite amazing. Waiting it for that picture to go off, so we'll see. Yeah, fair. All right, look. So I do not have the nerve to try to paraphrase Alex Dean. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read his story almost verbatim, and we're going to challenge Alex when he comes back from his joyous overseas investigation to find the two or three little nuggets that I modified just a little bit from his story. Okay. And then Mike, we're going to ask you to comment on this as the only legitimate historian among all three of us. Oh, so boy. as we would have said in our prior life, Mike, we have multiple levels of deniability. Alex wrote the story. He's not here. I'm reading the story, but I modified it. You're about to hear what I read and you had no knowledge of that. And you know, the true story. Well, I'm going to do my best, but I do want to note I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous because I have two good friends. One is Dr. Michael Livingston of the yes. city. And the other is Dr. Kelly DeVries of Loyola University. And they are, remember, I'm an ancient warfare historian and more recently an early modern warfare historian with a new book I'm working on. But these two guys are medievalists and they are medievalists who wrote a book together on Penn and Sword Press on the Battle of Hastings and Stanford Bridge, which led up to it. So I am so terrified that they're going to hear me commenting on it on this one. And I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it port and starboard after well, this. So before we get to this, Mike, talk about your new book. Is it with Livingston or what? what is no, so, I, so I've got two more coming. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my, uh, Dr. Livingston and I are working on a book called The Killing Ground, a biography of Thermopylae. And that's covering all of the battles of Thermopylae, not just the one in 40 BC that the movie 300 was made about. Over 20 battles fought there all the way up until World War II. And we're asking the question, why? Why are all these people killing themselves and killing each other? over this tiny strip of ground in the middle of nowhere, because it truly is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And that, that manuscript, 
It'll be turned in in uh, January and uh, published the following year. And then I should be announcing, and I feel safe enough to say it here uh, shortly, I'm just waiting on the deal memo, my new book, uh, Steel Lobsters, The Last Nights in England. And that's about the last heavily armored cavalry regiment. So think like fully armored knights, but with guns instead of lances that fought in the English Civil War in 1643. They only were in full armor for a month. And their story is absolutely amazing. I, I can't believe nobody's written a book about it yet. But, so that why, but Mike, why lobsters? Were they amphibious with all that? No, no, because covered in their steel metal carapaces, because they, they fought in 1643, a time when heavy armor was already obsolete. People said, man, look at those lobsters, because they were covered, <laughs> in, covered in metal, because they were, it was such a strange sight. I am no military expert, as you know, Mike, but I got to believe that heavy armor and amphibious warfare do, don't go well together. <laughs> no, just look at the Civil War ironclads and their, yeah. uh, their uh, checkered history and you'll get, a, you'll get a clue on that. Fair. All right. So look, I'm going to now tell the story from the unbelievably creating, creatively named More Lessons of His, from History by Alex Dean. <laughs> well done. Uh, chapter 23, <laughs> and it's entitled, That Was My Brother. Now, let me say, as a person sitting in the United States of America on October 30th, 2022, I still have no access to this book, Amazon. I have to have literally, and Mike does too, literally Alex Dean took photos of the pages from his book and texted them to us. That's how we know this story. So let's come on, get on the stick. It's Christmas. It's the holidays. Let's get this book out there. That was my brother. Mike, this story takes place in that little historically noted year of 1066 at the Stanford, not Stanford with an N, Stanford with an M, although I will note that the UCI sponsored cybersecurity team that my institute sponsored did beat Stanford a couple of years ago, but that's a different story. Well done. Stanford Bridge in what is now Fulham, Fulham is probably how you say it, adjacent to Chelsea in West London. Now I'm gonna tell this story, but Alex, requires that I preface it thusly. Given the current tussle for Stamford Bridge, and Mike, as Alex notes in the book, at the time he was writing it, the ownership of the Chelsea Football Club, which apparently plays at a ground called Stamford Bridge, was in question after Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich was sanctioned by the British government. For those dying to know, Mike, I can report, courtesy of the interwebs, that as of May 2022, after Alex wrote the book and turned it into his publisher, American billionaire Todd Bowley, I probably pronounced that wrong, led a group of other billionaires in buying the Chelsea Football Club from Abramovich for a whopping, are you ready for this, $5.4 billion in the most expensive sports purchase in history. Mm. Are you a soccer fan, uh, Mike? I mean, I watch the FIFA World Cup every four years, but I don't follow the, uh, the, the, uh, the games in between. I have become a bit of a football fan, uh, English football fan, uh, from the uh, TV show Ted Lasso. Of and, the, yeah. and, and the reality show based on the TV show uh, with Ryan Reynolds about the Wrexham Wales uh, team. So this yeah. is what I know about soccer. Ted Lasso. Also, yeah. oh my God, it's it's... I don't, I don't really love sports shows. I don't really love 30-minute comedies. And I know nothing about football, soccer. But even when it's a sad, tragic story, I come away happy somehow. Well, what I love about Lasso is that if, if folks remember, when Game of Thrones came out on HBO, TV in general took a turn for the dark 
Game yeah. of Thrones was such a successful TV show and it was successful because it was so brutal and so yeah. black. And Lasso was a deliberate and self-conscious effort to swing it back the other way. And boy, did it. And I'm so grateful for it. What a wonderful show. Yeah, it's it's if, if for anyone that hasn't seen it, don't worry if you don't like soccer. Don't worry yeah. if you don't like sports shows. Don't worry if you don't like situation comedies. It will brighten your life. It yeah. just will. Trust me on that. Also, Mike, I checked a few minutes ago, and unlike many of his fellow Russian oligarchs, Roman Abramovich, uh, Abramovich has not fallen from a high window or otherwise expired under mysterious circumstances since Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Rather, he appears to be alive and well, sporting triple citizenship, Russia, Israel, and Portugal, and has moved up to four of his super yachts to Turkey, where he appears to have been taken up residence. Well, I guess they're going to keep us from seizing them, uh, you know, in an effort to put pressure on Putin. It's a good move for him. I have taken a speedboat around the uh, super yacht seized by Mike's uh, former agency, the U.S. Coast Guard, <laughs> south of San Diego. Very proud. Very proud. Very proud. Enough of that. <laughs> Alex brings us the most interesting story to be taken away from the original battle of the Heralds. Okay, now everyone concentrate. There are two principal characters in this story with the same name. And fun fact, Michael, which I bet you don't even know because I don't like to talk about the H word, is that happens to be my first name. It's your first name? Your first name is Brian. Harold is my first name. Really? Yes, now, Brian is my on, middle name. Hold on, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna crib on the story, but is it the Norwegian spelling? We don't, it's uh, no, it's the English spelling H A R O L D. Yep, yep, yep. It's a family thing. We don't want to get into it. But anyway, I was about to say, it's a good thing you didn't tell me. I would have been calling you Your Excellency the whole time we were on. <laughs> so many people do. I don't even like to talk about it. But look, let's jump into the Wayback Machine, shall we? Mm -hmm. It's 1066. Edward the Confessor has died. And the wise men of England have made Harold of England the king, as Edward himself recommended. But Harold's brother, Tostig, erstwhile Earl of Northumbria, and here I'm going to note, Alex Dean, when you watch this on your overseas assignment, you go back and forth between Northumbria and, and, and Northumberland, and we're going to talk about that when you get back. But <laughs> Harold's brother, Tostig, erstwhile Earl of Northumbria, had been accused of various bits of bad behavior, like, you know, bumping off house guests, and he was exiled during Edward's reign despite being Edward's brother-in-law. I don't accept that despite, by the way. I've been married before, and brother-in-laws <laughs> are not to be trusted. Absolutely. Am I right? Absolutely not. In any event, he fomented dissent against the king. He plundered the countryside, as one does. And eventually, he joined forces with Harold of Norway. Perhaps, Mike Cole, you can see where this is headed. I can indeed. I can indeed. So I'm going to butcher the names as always. We'll get letters. Harold Hardrada, aka Harold Hardrada. That, that's right. Yeah. Okay, aka say the next part for me. Harold Sigurdsson. That guy, aka <laughs> Harold of Norway, styled as H A R A L D in his own country, but plain old Harold to the Anglospheric historian, had designs upon Britain, and Tostig was a useful enough sidekick in developing them. Norwegian Harold was a tough nut with more than a decade of mercenary life under his belt before he developed monarchic ten tendencies. 
In the days when kings and would-be kings fought for their own battles, this mattered. Mike Cole, historian, when did that end? When did kings stop heading into battle themselves? Oh, good Lord. Uh, that's a that's a really tough question. I'm trying to think. I mean, um, in this book that I'm working on, uh, 1643, King Charles, the, the Charles Stuart, Charles I was still uh, involved in battles. He was present at the Battle of Edge Hill that started the English Civil War. So I would say not not until deep until until the modern age. Way past our story, right? Way past. Yeah. So, Harold of Norway and Tostig sailed with their forces, principally Norwegian, reinforced by forces from Orkney, Flanders, and Scotland, up the, I, I will not be able to pronounce this, Use River, O-U-S-E, Mike? Uh, Use River, yes. Use River, and promptly seized York. Harold of England was down south, awaiting an expected invasion by William the er, Conqueror. Spoiler, but not for this story. Harold of England marched north with his forces at such a speed that he took the Norwegians and their allies by surprise. Thus, on 25 September at Stamford Bridge in Yorkshire along the Derwent River, two armies faced each other. Relatively evenly matched at a little over 10,000 men each, but with Harold of Norway's forces, forces rather unprepared for a fight, and with one-third of their number back at their ships, who joined the battle eventually, Alex says, but rather too late. Whilst Harold of England's forces were without such disadvantages. So there's one little detail that Alex may have left out there, and that is that um, the two thirds that Harold's men brought up to the bridge left their armor on their ships. And that was a major factor, uh, at least according to the Anglo Saxon Chronicle. And this was to move quickly and lightly, or just move quickly to take the bridge, right? So that they could could funnel the uh, English forces into a choke point. And does this echo down the ages, Mike? Because I would assume that even today, you know, uh, armor versus speed is still a thing. It still is a thing. And and it was even a thing in the ancient world. I I was just writing an article for Ancient Warfare magazine about how Greek hoplite armor declined across the classical period, thousands of years before this battle. Um, And and that was, uh, we believe, although it's certainly not decided, a decision that when you're facing Persian archers and other kinds of missile troops, you're better off risking getting hit with an arrow with no armor, but closing more quickly than you are wearing heavy armor and being slower. Well, all of my experience in this area, Mike, revolves around the golf course. But I, I would much rather be cold than have my swing inhibited by a, <laughs> a heavy uh, jacket. So that's, that's, that's my heroic uh, story related to this. Yeah, no, anyway. it definitely proves the point. <laughs> Famously, the bridge over the river that was contested was supposedly held by one ferocious Nordic warrior who defeated all comers. I mean, this sounds like David and Goliath stuff, like there was single combat until an Englishman took a little boat underneath the bridge and stabbed him from below in the unmentionables. At the barrel, not a boat, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Floated under there in, in, in a split barrel. Well, I mean, it floated and it was moving, so it was a boat, right? Not according to the United States Coast Guard. Not <laughs> okay, a fair. fair enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm now flashing back to Mike, as you know, as a frequent guest on our show, Alex and I frequently, uh, I, I've said frequently too frequently now, but we, we often talk about the West Wing. And the pilot episode is uh, includes the line where the Cubans are mostly coming in fruit baskets, pretty much. So maybe that's the thing. But however, Alex 
shied away from this part of the story. He didn't want to talk about the unmentionable. So let me stop here because mm. Alex may not have wanted to tell it mm. after, by the way, single-handedly destroying our family-friendly rating while I was sampling limoncello in Italy two weeks ago. But I do want to tell it. Okay. Thoughts? Fair dinkum is all fair in love and war. If you get your basket underneath a bridge, should you stab the guy in the gonads or not? You do what you have to do to win, right? I mean, uh, it isn't just, look, if this if this champion is holding the bridge and, and that's going to cause your army to lose and it's killing your compatriots, well, you know, you're saving lives effectively by uh, by taking a that advantage. I don't I think mean, there's honor in it. Kid, kidding aside, um, you know, war is killing, right? And 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 I get a little uncomfortable with a lot of the modern discussion of um, you didn't observe all the protocols. Of course, you got to observe Geneva. You have to do everything by international convention, but you kill the person the way you got to kill the person, right? War, war is a thing of brutal necessity. Look, uh, and those you find that those conventions fall away very, very quickly out of necessity, even no matter how much uh, honor is involved. But I do want to say that this story of, of a single warrior holding the bridge, um, yeah. I can't say it is not true. But uh, what I seems... can say, what I can say is that I, I have seen this story before in other sources and others in other tales so often that it's almost like a trope. And I, I would encourage your listeners to look up the story of Horatius at the bridge, which is an ancient, I, I think, under the Roman monarchy before Rome was even a republic, a similar story that, um, that almost, you know, a line for line matches this one. Um, and, and you will find other stories like that throughout history. So it does make me suspicious because I do know that chroniclers of this period were very familiar with the tropes of the classics, uh, that they might have been influenced by them. Me too. Why, why do you think it would have been in the interest of the chroniclers to put it this way? Why couldn't it have been a squad of people or a battalion of people? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and, I, and I think I would have to know more about um, sort of Anglo-Saxon conceptions of, of, uh, of the role of the champion and uh, what individual heroism means. Um, but I do think it simply is for a much more dramatic story, a single champion against all comers. Uh, you know, adds a lot of tension in a way that a group of men can. And we've talked in prior discussions, Mike, of the value of story, whether or not it's exactly historically accurate. So I'm going to give my pal Alex the benefit of the doubt, especially when he's out on his honeymoon. So Why I'm not? just going to continue with the story as written. Before a battle began, a score of Englishmen armored up to the eyes, that's like a lot of armor, mm -hmm. uh, rode from the English host toward the viking lines to parlay now let's stop a minute and talk about parlay here's what i know about parlay what i know about parlay comes from pirates of the caribbean curse of the black pearl uh so a great what source is, that'll serve you well what what is at this time in 1066 you, you know i assume you could discuss under truce but what's the reliability of that and could you kill the person that was riding up to you, or what was the story there? I mean, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it certainly happened, and you could. Um, and I'm sure there are plenty of examples of that. But no, part you know, flag of parley was supposed to guarantee the safety of the person engaged in it. And while you were under that flag, you were supposed to be able to negotiate. Um, and the idea was to possibly avoid a battle, to grant concessions, to gain concessions. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, but in racking my brain, I think in most cases it usually led to battle. Well, this will become very important at the end of our story. And um, I'm sure you have some thoughts on the, the, the portrayal in the 300 when they toss the messenger down the 
I don't know, whatever, Ring of Hell or whatever they did. But let's continue. Oh, well, yeah. Before battle began, as I said, a score of Englishmen arbored up to the eyes, rode from the English host towards the Viking lines to parlay. One of the Englishmen shouted towards the Norse lines, is Earl Tostig amongst you? In perhaps the first recorded double negative in our tongue, Tostig shouted back, and it cannot be said that he is not. And I love uh, Alex, our absent friend's uh, description of that, because I'm sure that wasn't the first, but it's, it's an amazing example of a double negative. The Englishman replied, our king greets his brother and says that he shall have Northumberland. And now in my notes, I have parentheses because Alex says Northumberland and Northumbria. Right. Again, indeed, rather than his brother should be the enemy, he will give him a third of his kingdom. So this, uh, as I understand the story, Mike, was was the offer that was on the table before they killed a bunch of his countrymen, right? Right. But also, like, this this strikes me as very cynical, if you understand the history of Tostig and, and uh, Harold. Tostig uh, was ousted from Northumbria after a rebellion occurred, and uh, uh, Edward the Confessor sent Harold, then an earl, to negotiate with those rebels. And Harold took a look at the situation, realized that Tostig's goose was cooked, and, and advised him to exile and to declare him an outlaw and get him out of there. So I can't imagine that, um, and look, it's a great story, but I can't imagine that Harold was in great earnest. Yeah, he's going to give him a third of his kingdom, and probably while Tostig is sleeping, that third of the kingdom will be taken back accompanied by a dagger. So, uh, you know, I take that one with a grain of salt. Also, it could be the crappy third, right? So like when, <laughs> when, 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 when uh, the, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the founding days were happening, um, they wanted a capital that would not be controlled by any state. So, of course, Virginia and Maryland gave up their shittiest property to, to the federal government. All right, let me continue. Tostig, says Alex Dean, with some truth to what he said, it must be admitted responded that if only such fair words had been offered to him last winter, many men who had died in the fraternal dispute would instead have lived. And so he asked his interlocutor, what will my brother, King Harold of England, give my ally, King Harold of Norway, for his toil? So first of all, Michael, how confusing is this? And second of all, all the monarchs called themselves brothers, even if they weren't actually related, right? Well, there's a there's a sort of a brotherhood of kings, right? That when you are when that being royal transcends uh, boundaries of state and language, and there are certain dignities that are owed to to men of royal blood. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised that there that that kind of courtesy was offered. But as you are about to tell us in the story, uh, it's not particularly courteous toward Harold Hadar. And also, I don't think there's a transcript of that conversation. In any event, according yeah. to Alex Dean. The Englishman replied that the king would give the Norsemen six feet of English ground in which he would forever rest, or perhaps a little more on account of his famous height. I doubt there was that many people that were over six feet at that uh, point, right? But Mike, I have to interrupt myself again here. Being in the presence of not only an actual historian, but indeed a student of the process of history, I'm always highly skeptical of the catchphrase uttered by historical figures i think we know that nuts was actually telegrammed by an american commander during world war ii but how much can we rely on this stuff well this is the thing i mean we can't uh but the, but the thing that's so troubling about it is that dismissing it out of hand is just as a historical as accepting yeah. it 
You know, this is a time before things are recorded uh, by audio or video. All we have are the chronicler statements. And in this case, and again, I'll repeat this for your listeners because it's available in translation yeah. online. I think most people can find it. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is, is a series of uh, and chronicles of, of the history of the Anglo-Saxons that was still being updated, uh, if I'm correct, you know, 200 years after, 100 yeah. to 200 years after, after the Battle of Stamford Bridge and the Battle of Hastings was fought. And the chroniclers put it in there and we have no more reason to disbelieve them to, than to believe them. So the only responsible answer is, and this is something historians have a lot of trouble with, because if we keep saying this, why do they need us? The answer is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Or is it that the outcome tells us that some version of what's been recorded is probably pretty close to true. I mean, sure. And we can work backwards from those outcomes. And in some cases, if we have multiple sources that we can compare to each other, we can get closer to the truth. And if we can compare those literary sources to an archaeological record and inscription or something that gets us there. But in the case of this quip, this brilliant quip, um, which I've heard translated is he gets seven yeah. feet of English ground because he's taller <laughs> yeah. than the rest, right? All we have is the literary source. And all I can say to you, Brian, is, man, I hope it's true because it is so badass. It, it is. It, it is. It, it is one of those stories, and I've told a few of these about Lyndon Johnson and Abraham Lincoln and George W. Bush, where if they're not true, they should be true. They should be true. Well, let me continue. So Earl Tostig apparently then says, the battle it is then, for I shan't betray my friends. And thus it was, according to Alex Dean, that any hopes of peace were dashed and the Battle of Stanford Bridge became inevitable. As the English horsemen rode back into their lines, Harold asked Tostig, who was that Englishman who talked to us? And Tostig replied, that was my brother. And so Harold Hardrada berated him and said, why? He had come so close to our lines. If we had known it was him, then he would not have returned to his own. So, Mike, does this call into question the entire uh, Pirates of the Caribbean concept of parlay? Like, if he's talking peace, they shouldn't have killed him, right? Well, so, but here's the thing. I, that, that's where I, I doubt it far too much. Harold Godwinson knew very well that his person if lost, would doom the entire English cause here. There is no way he is riding up alone to his brother who would recognize him and who absolutely would have taken advantage of it, uh, a parley or no parley. And there are plenty of examples of this. Again, I keep pulling ancient ones, but yeah. if folks uh, know um, of Xenophon's famous march on country, up country, the Anabasis, was triggered uh, by on the Battle of Kunaxa, where, where the young Cyrus had hired these Greek mercenaries, and even though they won the battle, Cyrus was killed. And so their cause was lost, and they had to retreat all the way back. That certainly, uh, with charismatic leaders, was the case. Um, and I think that Harold would never have taken that risk of putting himself directly into his enemy's hands. And I can't imagine Tosca could have resisted this. So you think he wasn't there? I think that a Harold went forward with those. An H-E-R-A-L-D. Yes, not a herald. A herald went forward uh, to make those demands, uh, to make that offer while Harold was safely uh, safely uh, at distance. Well, I've now cleverly ma maneuvered myself into another movie recommendation, uh, which is uh, Kenneth Branagh, uh, uh, Henry V. Yes, absolutely. The, the herald has a major role. Okay, so I'm going to continue with the story. So according to Alex Dean, who's not here to defend himself. I'm going to just keep <laughs> quoting his ass. Tostig agreed 
that it had not been wise of Harold to come so close, but observe that he had betrayed his identity, then he would have been his murderer. If one of them must be my murderer, then I should be his. And I think I might have mangled that, but I think the idea is that according to Alex's story, Tostig is saying, I knew everything was at risk and I don't want to kill my brother. I want my brother to kill me. Is that, am I? You know, you got it right. But I, again, I'm, I, I'm just filled with doubt. Look, I understand that uh, in 1066 uh, conceptions of honor were more deeply held perhaps uh, than they are in America in 2022. But from what I know, from what I know of the stakes and from what I know uh, from looking at ancient warfare and other medieval battles, I just, I just can't imagine Tustin would have cared. I think he would what have do you what do you think actually happened, Mike? I think a herald went forward. I think a herald went forward with the same demands. I think that he offered Tustig uh, a, a concession to try to get Tustig to turn coat on Harold Hardrada. I think that Harold Goblinson had Tostig turn coat would have murdered him immediately and reneged on his own deal. And I think that Tostig stuck with Harold Hardrada because he thought that that was who was going to win. Um, and uh, uh, they held a good position on that bridge and the Norwegian reputation was ferocious and you, as you said, Harold of Norway had an incredible reputation as a war leader and the English, mind you, were exhausted from racing yeah. north. Well, that's, this is what I want to talk about. I'm going to finish the story then I'm going to ask you that exact question. So the end of Alex's story is this. Tostig gets a bad write-up in the history books. The traitor the Grima worm tongue of his age, the man who allied himself with his countries and his family's enemies for personal advancement because of his jealousy and ambition, not the devil, but perhaps the guy who crosses the street to buy the devil a pack of cigarettes. And by the way, Alex Dean, I love that so much. I'm going to plagiarize the shit out of that in 20 right. articles from now on. Right. So then he says, the exchange at Stamford Bridge gives a rather different context, doesn't it? And then he concludes, those few poignant shouted sentences across the battle lines, the forlorn offer of peace and land and the insistence that alliances could not be given up, the words that left unsaid the identity of the king so that he lived, those sad words were the last time the brothers spoke. The battle was fought and Tostig died. And later on that year, William came as expected, and England fell before him. Alex says, I am not sure that much went through Harold's mind at Hastings as he lost the kingdom and his life, but I like to think, even in the last lament of a defeated king, that his brother was amongst his thoughts. Had they reconciled, who knows? Stanford Bridge might have been avoided, and Harold's forces at Hastings, all the stronger as a result, might have prevailed. So, Mike Cole, I'm going to ask you three questions. One, am I right that the Norman conquest in 1066 led to 300 plus years of such dominance that the English language was barely written, at least in public documents? Two, based on my very limited understanding of the Battle of Hastings, William's victory had at least as much to do with mismanagement, exhaustion, and retreat by the English forces as any superiority by William's forces and tax, true? If so, any lessons for Russia and Ukraine today? And three, if Harold and Tostig had made peace, would it have made any difference? 
All right. Uh, these are some tough ones. Um, the first one, are you right that the Norman Conquest led to 300 years of the English language barely being written in public documents? Yes. Uh, however, so Anglo-Norman, which is the court language, the French that William would have spoken when he wanted Hastings, was indeed for three centuries the uh, administrative language of England, the court language of, of England. However, it was less common than Latin. So you were far more likely to read Latin in official documents of that period huh. than you to Anglo-Norman French. And both of those languages, along with Greek and, and some German, contributed to Middle English and to the English that you and I are speaking right now. Um, your second question, uh, did, did William the Conqueror's victory at Hastings have to do with mismanagement and exhaustion and retreat by the English forces? No, uh, I don't agree with really? that. First of all, um, on, uh, so the Battle of Stamford Bridge, if I remember correctly, was fought on the 25th of September. Hastings was fought three weeks later. Alex says later in the year, which might give your readers the impression much later in the year, no way. Harold won at Stamford Bridge, turned around and ran the full length of England back down yeah. to the south coast to fight um, William. However, but, but that would also have wiped out his forces, right? Like, wouldn't they be exhausted when they got there? So that is a, a point that scholars have debated ferociously and still debate today. And the Battle of Hastings was an all-day battle, but battlefield analysis at the tactical level indicates that Harold's forces fought like wild dogs, and that exhaustion was probably not a factor. But I don't want to say that that, that isn't in dispute. What may have been a factor is that, that Saxon armies in 1066 were levies, specifically called the FYRD, F-Y-R-D, that were called from their farms um, to come up and fight. And because the fall was coming on 8 huh. September before Harold oh, marched oh. north to the 25th September, he disbanded his army in the south. Are and you that, are you telling me that they had to go home and plant the fields? They had to go home. Holy shit. Go work. That's right. And that is considered a major factor. Another factor, wow. um, you know, a lot of historians ask, well, look, why didn't Harold take his time going south? Why didn't he gather more forces? And that is also in dispute. Some people think that he wanted to catch William on the beach and prevent him from establishing a beachhead. Others think that he doubted the loyalty of his lords. Remember, uh, you know, in, in, in medieval uh, England in 1066, the king didn't have central control. He, he had barons that ruled locally uh, on mm -hmm. his behalf. And there may have been some issues uh, uh, in trustworthiness there. But scholars, I think, largely do agree that that disband on, on the 8th of September absolutely affected the course of history uh, in terms of William's victory. Now, your final question there, if Harold and Tustic had made peace, would it have made any difference? Absolutely. Um, it would have meant a very, very quick end to the Norwegian forces. Um, and I firmly believe that uh, Harold had no intention of sharing power with his brother. Tostig would have been dispatched or exiled uh, very, very quickly after that betrayal. But it would have meant far fewer casualties uh, and certainly whatever uh, forces Tostig had brought with him would have joined Harold and it might have resulted in a different outcome. Um, you mentioned retreat by the English. Now this is something that again, with Hastings and a lot of, um, a lot of these early battles, a lot of these things are in dispute, but a feigned yeah. retreat by Norman forces uh, broke the English shield wall, which is to say a lack of discipline on Harold's troops when they saw the Normans fleeing caused them to break their the wall of shields that they had formed that the Normans were bouncing off of to pursue them. And then when the Normans turned, 
they were caught out in the open. Um, now, I know this is disputed, uh, but it's interesting is, is Alex has it as a, a retreat by the English. Um, and of course, it would be a retreat by the, the Norman forces or a feigned retreat that may have uh, had an impact there. Feigned retreat. That just seems un ungentlemanly. <laughs> well, it's, it's got, there's a long history. In fact, Herodotus talks about the Spartans, uh, or rather the allied Greek forces at, at Thermopylae and 40 BC also doing a feigned retreat to try to get the Persians to close with them at two so, equal effect. So Mike, what lessons do you draw from this tale and how much of it do you think is apocryphal? You know, look, I certainly believe there was a battle of Stamford Bridge. I certainly believe that Tostig and Harold Hardrada were allied. I certainly believe that that Harold raced north after disbanding his army and defeated them there and then raced south and lost uh, to William the Conqueror. Yeah. It is only in the details, these cool catchphrases, this story of a lone warrior on the bridge that I, right. you know, I raise an, out, an eyebrow and it can't be proven either way, but I will return to, have you read The Life of Pi or seen the movie? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So for, for those yeah. of you out there, for the, your listeners and readers out there, I, we'll I don't want yeah. to spoil the story for you. But the whole point of Life of Pi is that when you have two competing narratives and you can't prove either one, but they both just provide flavor to the you same core truth, then you pick the story you like better. And in the yeah. case of Stanford Bridge, I like the story of the badass catchphrase. I like the story of the lone Dane defending that bridge. I like the story of Harold rushing north and south. It's a far more dramatic tale and it doesn't change the stakes. So what do you got to lose by listening to it? And you can learn from all of it, right? You know, I mean, is there, are there any lessons we can take away from this to um, the current, let's say, Russia-Ukraine conflict? Sure. So, and, and I think that uh, moral authority is a big one. Here's yes. the thing. Look, you know, invasions are almost always cynical and self-interested, no matter what you say. We're, we're fighting for freedom. We're fighting to liberate these people. In the end, you know, I remember uh, going into Iraq, um, you know, at least myself and the people who went there, we had the best of intentions. We really believed that we were fighting for freedom. We really believed that we were fighting to protect the United States. And I remember coming home to my friends saying, you know, you fought for Kellogg, Brown and Root. You fought to make money for oil companies. And no matter how firmly I believed in my own cause, you know, that that cynical narrative, I couldn't disprove it. Right. They were able to show ways in which that could be considered to be true. That idea of moral. Let me just stop you right there, Mike. Sure. Um, it's a future episode. I think I can disprove that. Oh, OK. OK. <laughs> I will be looking forward to that. Come back uh, on that future episode that would be wonderful um that would certainly help me in a lot of arguments i've had with my friends um but uh that idea of moral authority is critical yeah. that you yeah. are in the right and that's critical to ensuring the support of the populace to ensuring that you can recruit troops to ensuring that those troops are going to stick with you when they suffer reverses and i think that one of the things that we've seen in ukraine um is that russia ceded the moral authority immediately yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. they lost the social media war on day one. Yeah. And you can say Zelensky is, Zelensky is an incredible leader in a lot of ways. But one way in which he is beyond gifted is actually something that he shares in common with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. They were both entertainers. Absolutely. They were both guys who know how to be in front of the camera and how to tell a story to an audience. And man, has that worked out well for you. And by the way, Churchill was a journalist in the interregnum between World War I and World War II. Yep. And talk this, about this, talk about badass quips. Like, I mean, you could, there are books written of all the cool crap. Uh, this stuff. is this is starting to be a 
almost irresistible narrative. And yeah. I don't want to put it quite this crassly, but like if you're in a war, don't you want a sitcom star as your guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? I mean, Especially now. And look, it's so incredible to watch the Russia-Ukraine conflict unfold is that it's it's the first war I've ever seen that's fought on social media. It's a Twitter war. Oh. And it's, it's a Twitter war with Ukraine cleaning Russia's clock. It's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And now you have the... <laughs> It's like it's like multiple hall, halls of mirrors. You have the guy who is now literally in charge of Twitter um, supplying a fundamental combat capability to one side, yep. but kind of nobody really knows where he stands. Yeah, well, he actually he tweeted out some, uh, Musk tweeted out some stuff the other day questioning sort of Ukraine's right to resist or maybe... Um, sort right. of talking, we might be better off, um, you know, gratifying uh, Putin, which he certainly right. came in, some, in my opinion, well-deserved criticism for that position. But hey, look, as long as, he keeps, as long as he keeps giving the Ukrainian Starlink, I'll take it. You know, you can say whatever he wants, you know. One thousand percent. Okay, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, uh, we're going to if 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 the gods align, uh, we're going to have you back on next week because Alex will still be honeymooning, which I, um, you know, I'm a little jealous of. But, yeah, it should be fun. But. <laughs> I got to ask you one last question before sure. we uh, before we close. You have spent uh, thousands of barrels of ink very persuasively debunking the notion that the Spartans were the greatest military of all time. Uh, I'm persuaded. What is the greatest military of all time? Or is that not even a reasonable question to ask? It's, it is a perfectly reasonable question, but you're not going to like my answer. Um, so there is a concept in military history called Praetorianism. And it's a word mm -hmm. we use off of the Praetorian Guard, the famous um, bodyguard of the Roman. Yeah, the Romulans had that. That's right. That right. This is famous uh, bodyguard of the Roman emperors, who, by the way, often wound up killing the emperors they were in charge of. Right. Um, and it's this idea that elite military units or elite military performers like this Danish warrior on the bridge, um, you know, are, are, somehow have this great superiority. And I don't think any serious historian of military history can gratify that. People are people. Units are, are, are composed of human beings. Certainly elite units um, have uh, some moral advantage. Certainly they may even have skill and technology advantage. But if, and I always say this, you show me the most badass samurai, the most well-equipped Navy SEAL, the best trained English knight, and I will show you in their ranks, examples of them surrendering, betraying their comrades, engaged in friendly fire incidents. So the only answer is, is that some units of warriors show great heroism and elitism at some times, and at other times they show great failure. And it is in reckoning with the humanity of those uh, elite units and elite warriors that we really do history justice. So that's not so much disappointing, Mike, as it is a dodge. Because, <laughs> because no, I get it. I, I, I wonder, I've read your writing. I agree with you. Uh, everyone is a human, whether they're a Navy SEAL or whether they're a Spartan or whatever they are. But there has to be some scale. Like you published a whole book, The Bronze Lie, mm -hmm. where you ranked the losses and wins of mm -hmm. the Spartans. So you you have to have an opinion on um, at any given period of time, who was the best. You got to have an opinion on that. I mean, you can, but remember, it's 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 in that moment, in that period, right? In Fair. some 
have these elite units that do incredibly well in one battle and in the next battle they completely fail and certain generals that triumph in one battle and in the next battle completely fail and i can think of dozens of examples of that from history I, I, look at you know this is the thing um and i'll again quote uh, my my friend and mentor dr michael livingston which yeah, yeah. one of the most important things to me as an historian the important thing is not to be right the important thing is to get it right. Yeah. And that relentless commitment to the truth, even when it makes the story more boring, is what you have got to do when you're telling these stories. And this is why, like I gave that example from the life of Pi, when the facts of it don't change and you're just enjoying the story, I'm fine with it. But in this case, when we're ranking, when we're gonna take a specific, you know, the Achaemenid Persian immortals, these great 10,000 warriors and the thousand apple bearers that were Xerxes' personal guard that had done such amazing things under the reign of Darius. Um, and then they come into Thermopylae, right? And they're just slaughtered, right? So, or, or, at, or uh, at later battles. So, you know, it really does go uh, case by case. It's not so a are you say So Mike, are you saying there's no objectivity to it? There's not, there's no way to like rank in a particular battle, in a particular adversary situation at a particular time, these guys were great. You're, you're, sure, no, it no, sounds it, like you're it, saying you can't do that. No, you can. You can do it in an individual battle, but what, what good does that do? Then you're looking at how units performed in an individual battle. Well, you're but it's pretty, it's pretty good if you're trying to train future units, right? Sure. And look, you know, I can certainly, you can certainly say that a unit had better gear, a unit had better morale, a unit had better training, a unit had better supply. All of that is accurate. Look, you know, you know, I, as a regular Coast Guard uh, officer, I wasn't in, you know, M our MSRT, you know, a regular, you know, Navy sailor is not a SEAL, right? Those are very, right. very sought after programs that are difficult to get into. Right. But the problem with Praetorianism is that it, mythologizes these units, right? And it, and it sort of implies perfection. Well, we're gonna send the Navy SEALs. They're gonna get the job done because they're Navy SEALs. Well, they don't always get the job done, do they, right? Sometimes they fall down. That's the thing that I'm railing against. So if I'm reading you correctly, you're saying people are people. So why should it be? <laughs> All of the people the Rick treat Roll, so awfully. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than a Rickroll. I'll take Mike, it. Mike, this is great. Thanks. First of all, you're coming back next week, and we're going to rock this shit again. Alex, stay on your honeymoon as long as you want to because <laughs> we're going to butcher your fucking stories, and you already ruined our family rating, so I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want. Mike's coming back. Enjoy your time abroad, and uh, you know maybe you'll have a job when you get back. Congratulations, Alex, and good luck Mike, to both of you. Mike, thank you. It's been so great. Thank you for your contribution to uh, cybersecurity, to special warfare, to intelligence analysis, to uh, local firefighting in New York. And I think, cheers, we're out. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.